0: Hey Richard Gottlieb It's Byrne How you doing? I'm doing great How about you? I had a great
1: Thanksgiving
0: I did too actually It was unusual uh, but yeah. it but it was definitely it was definitely great. It was nice to be with all the family with Zoom. You got all of the fun and none of the agita. So it, it actually worked out pretty well. <laughs> so uh, this is the Playground Podcast. I'm Chris Byrne with Richard Gottlieb, and we are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the Toy Guy and Chizcom, and today We are very excited because I have been chasing this guy to get him on the show for a while. He is an old friend or a friend of long duration, I should say. Uh, Jeff Walker, who I've known since his childhood at Mattel. And he is now the CEO of KidCraft and doing some amazing things. We're going to get into that. And I think a lot of stuff that people in the industry can learn about how do you take a brand and really rocket it forward into uh, the current market. So, Jeff, thank you so much for being with us. Ah, uh, Chris Richard, thank you for having me. Why don't you start by telling us your storied career <laughs> in the toy industry, how you got here and and how you got to Dallas, Texas?
2: Wow, yeah, that's a it's a long story. You know, it's uh, as I was thinking about it, I realized this is my twenty fifth year in the industry. And uh, so it's been a long journey. I actually started my career as an accountant. I have a CPA. Um, I passed <laughs> the right. test. And you know me enough years, I don't fit a CPA mold very well, Um, but I I got out of, uh, I went to business school because I I did not want to be a CPA for life. And during why I was there, I made a kind of a very definitive decision, finding consumer product companies, but products I could get emotionally attached to and maybe I was a millennial before it was cool, but it was, um, you know, I, I, I applied to places like Nintendo and Sega and Mattel Hasbro and, and places that just had cool kids products. And I didn't get any of those jobs. And I ended up working at a hair care company, which <laughs> not many people know about. I, I, uh, I did hair care for one year. And then one of the, the people I worked with in the company ended up moving to Hot Wheels and he, uh, uh, got me an interview. And I interviewed in the action figure business at Mattel back long before they had much of a, a business. And and I ended up landing the role. And the first job I had was on a property. You may remember, it was this amazing movie property that was just about to launch called Judge Dredd, starring <laughs> Sylvester Stallone.
1: I do yeah. remember that. <laughs>
2: And uh, yeah, that's the type of movies Mattel was kind of taking back in the day. They've grown up a lot since then. But uh, what we found in my first week on the job, the movie had yet to be rated and it was just handed its rating the week before the movie opened, which was an R. And so if you think you're designing toys for 48 year old boys, an R rating is usually a a pretty bad model. And so uh, my first job was basically to close out all the products. And so, <laughs> it, it, not a very glorious start to my career, but it uh, it led to a lot of other great things. Through that, you know, and then over the course of the next twenty three years at Mattel, I was fortunate to lead and grow many of the most iconic brands in the industry, from Hot Wheels to Fisher Price to Uno, Masters of the Universe, uh, Batman, Toy Story. I mean, every you know, all the great ones. And it really it was it was an amazing experience, and I, I was fortunate to work with some amazing people. I moved all around the world for Mattel. Uh, they let me, I ran Europe and Russia for a while, moved to Buffalo and ran Fisher Price, as you know, for several years. Was able to regrow that business and, and really had a great run over all the businesses. And, and then uh, kind of moved back to LA and was starting to think about what would be the next journey after Mattel. And uh, got a call from a headhunter for Cape Craft down here in Dallas. And it seemed like the right kind of opportunity. They were looking for a uh, an executive that knew product innovation branding and commercial strategy and those are the three things i kind of spent most of my career doing
1: i think you got a fabulous line uh, but what business are you in are you in the furniture business are you in the toy business are you in the toy environment business how do you kind of see what what business you're in
2: yeah we i mean we're we're a Toy company, we're imaginative play and we really focus on kids. We have three distinct divisions. We have our toy division, we have an outdoor division, and then we have a small furniture that's kind of legacy. It's actually how the company started was furniture. And they morphed into dollhouses and kitchens based on the the materials. Uh, And then we bought an outdoor company uh, about three years ago.
0: And Jeff, you are one of the very best product people I have ever met in the business. And I think it goes back to your sense of passion for it and your passion for kids and play and imagination. You inherited something in KidCraft, which was very solid, literally and figuratively, but, (laughs) but you've had to evolve it. Talk a little bit about the, some of the changes you've made because the KidCraft product I look at from several years ago has truly evolved in the pa- in the past couple of years. What has your strategy been as you've brought it forward?
2: The KidCraft line of products is traditional, and we do a phenomenal job of filling that that kind of gap in the marketplace. But really what I wanted to do was extend the brand and the segments both by ages and by play patterns. And so we wanted to bring new looks and new tones, new age targets, you know, adding in more innovative play to our kitchens, adding technology to the kitchens. We also know that there are colors and colors matter. And, you know, parents want things that fit the home decor nowadays. They don't want pink and purple on everything that fits one type of consumer. But there are other consumers out there that want other looks that fit more of their home. And so we've really started to broaden the range outside of just the traditional towards more fun and adding play to everything we do.
1: You create, I believe, many of your products are, are play environments. And I don't feel our industry has paid as much attention to the importance of play environments. How do you see that? Could we be doing more as an industry to, to really uh, push that? Well, I think
2: what you see in research is kids play with, with all different types of brands together. And so if you take one of our dollhouses, they'll put Barbie in there, they'll put LOL, and they'll put princesses in there, and they'll, they'll, they don't think about right. the brands as, I can only play a Barbie doll with a Barbie dream house. They, will, they want to play it across a number of different environments, and that's creative that allows their minds to go and take their dolls on the different journeys and different spaces. And that's great. And so some days they may want a dream house and other days they may not, not want that, and that's good. And so we fill that niche in the marketplace on giving kids this more open play to their lives.
0: And 2020, let's talk a little bit about 2020. It's, it's been an unusual year for the toy industry, but it's also been a good year for you. Talk about some of the forces that have really propelled your business in this year.
2: Yeah. I mean, 2020 has been amazing. I think uh, it's, we all walked into the year at leaving Toy Fair on, on, on a high. And uh, if you think about February, it was a, maybe a week or two after Toy Fair where New York started locking the city down. I left New York thinking we had one of the most innovative lines that the growth ahead of us was going to be solid. And then you entered March thinking, oh man, I don't know what this year is going to look like. Will the whole back end shape up to be? And then April hit. And our business skyrocketed as, as the, all the lockdowns happened across the U.S. You know, with the three groups we have in the outdoor play, uh, we, the as people were canceling summer camps and the daycare and things like that, but they wanted to get their kids off the of screens, we saw the outdoor side of our business just skyrocket because they wanted that active play. They wanted kids to get up and move around and, and get off of the screen for a bit, because screens for play and screens for school can get a lot. And, and so we were one of the big winners over the summer, um, and we've been chasing all year to bring more in. It's been, uh, it's been amazing to be a part of. On the other side, the again, the innovation and the open-ended play that comes from the role play, uh, the things like the kitchens and the dollhouses and the train tables, that's what parents want right now. They want these great open-ended play that really gives their kids freedom and imagination. The quality that comes from the kid craft uh, that really has helped accelerate the business. We, it's been incredible all the way through yesterday, Cyber Monday, the numbers haven't slowed down a bit and uh, uh, we're having the best year in the company's history by far. This, this last quarter, Q4, we're low by any expectations in our numbers. And it's been, a, it's been fun.
1: Is that coming from new retailers or is it an expansion of existing business?
2: You know, part of one of the reasons I chose KidCraft, we do 70% of our volume online. So in some ways, I got lucky when the whole world shifted online and people have talked about the acceleration to online buying. My whole company has been built around online selling. So we have been one of the absolute big winners as the consumer has shifted there because that's one of our core competencies as a company. And it's been fun because, you know, as everyone else is trying to catch up to that side, um, we're already there. And, you know, in a, kind of a strange part when I took the job, my team struggles a little bit with how do you display a product in store? because it's not something we've done a whole lot of. Sure. And, uh, and so we've had to kind of build some of that muscle up over the past year. We have a great dropship business, which is where we live on their websites. They never pick up the inventory and it goes right out of our warehouse to the consumer. And uh, we are phenomenal at our managing of that. And that allows us to get into accounts and kind of prove ourselves using the model. And it's really helped to grow the business.
0: That's really serendipitous as well, as we hear more and more toy companies are going to direct-to-consumer, that you've already got the the grooves for that.
2: And we've seen our direct-to-consumer. KidCraft.com is one of our big investments that we've made over the past year. The business is up over 200% year-to-date, and we're continuing to scale it as fast as we can.
1: Now, your your retails are, are, a lot of them are triple-digit retails. Can you describe your consumer to us? Is, is, are they an older family? Are they uh, affluent? Uh, or are they just people who asp- you know, aspire? I
2: think it's it's we have a couple different demos, but it's a little bit of all of the above. I um you know they are definitely middle to upper class from a consumer perspective because yeah, as you said, they are over hundred dollars almost everything, and many of our swing sets range from a thousand up. Um, but we do offer some lower end th- items. Uh, one of our Best-selling swing sets is two hundred ninety-nine dollars at Walmart. And to me, it's 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 the ultimate in entry-level swing sets. Now, that's an entry level at three hundred bucks. But you know, the, when you want all the bells and whistles, you go for the thousand-dollar, fifteen-hundred-dollar one. Or $1, one. Uh, and there's a different consumer stratification on every segment like that. And we try to make sure we map out to to each consumer across the platforms.
0: I just want to put that in context because back in the day when I was still at CBS, we were creating creative playthings, wood gyms, and those gyms were big backyard wood gyms and back in the 80s, those were $400. So you're still delivering a lot of value.
2: Uh, I love when the old guys say, back in the 80s, this is what I did.
0: (laughs) Right, exactly. Exactly. I want to switch gears and ask you about management style because it's not just me who's a fan of yours. You have tons of fans in the industry, and you're known for building teams. Talk okay. a little bit about you. You seriously are. How do you approach that process? Because I think it's really important.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm, one, I'm humbled. I, I've been fortunate to work around some of the greats in the industry, and I, I was, as you think about who I learned from, you know. The, probably the two biggest leaders I worked for that taught me the most were Tim Kilpin, who I know everyone knows, um, one of the all-time great leaders in the industry and one of the best bosses I ever had, and Bob, Hurt, who was a CEO of Mattel for like 13 years. But they both taught me a lot about leading, um, and they both let me be me, and that was something Bob really taught me was, uh, you know, I, I love to walk around and engage people and talk to them versus lead from afar. And so even at KidCraft, I, I, you know, part of I'm struggling is leading over zoom is a super different world. Um, But I've been fortunate to have people, you know, you think about Jeremy Padawer, he was on my team at one point and, you know, Mike Rinsler I worked with and, you know, the go down through the spin master people that have worked with me or around me. It's been incredible to, to uh, work with just great talent. I, I tend to, drive people hard, but in very encouraging and very engaging and setting, setting goals, but letting people breathe. I think part of when I, I, even when I talk about innovation, it's not always about me. It's what I like. It's about the consumer and the passion of the team to go make something happen. And so I've been, I've been, I've been fortunate. A lot of, you know, great people that have worked on my teams over the years.
1: In the beginning of our conversation, you said that you wanted to work with products that you could be passionate about and cared about. So now you're working with a product that's green. It's a quality product. Is that part of what brought you to KidCraft?
2: It starts for me and a lot of the people, if you take it back to the last question, I always hired people with with passion. I like people with pop culture knowledge base. So I'm going to bridge the gap here. But, you know, I, I always looked at, like, I'm a comic book collector. You get in my deep, dark secrets. And I'll talk about that off to the side, but I, you know, I own 30,000 comic books. Uh, get out. 30, yeah. 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 I'm a total, yeah. I'm a total comic nerd. They're all stored away, boxed and bagged and boarded. And I don't, don't get me going, but <laughs> it's, uh, um, but I, you know, when I interviewed people and people like put um you know, part of my interview questions were, what are you passionate about? And I'd always want to see because, you know, part of selling toys is showing that passion. And when you're in the pitch meetings or you're at Toy Fair, you're always pitching. So I was interviewing somebody and it really came to about how do you drive passion in the interviews? And I always find out what they know about pop culture. And some people are movie buffs or anime buffs. And I like to hire people that bring that to the table because that's kind of where we live. And uh, I interviewed this one gentleman one time and he proceeded to tell me how he met Michael Jordan. And it was the most boring story on the planet. (laughs) And I was sitting there going like, I'm going to ask you to sell the most nondescript planet at some point to a buyer. And if you can't get me excited about Michael Jordan, how are you going to get excited about this toy? And so that it led me to kind of, I always have to have products that I love.
1: Another thing that you said earlier, was that when you originally applied for a job, you applied uh, to, I believe, uh, Nintendo maybe, as a couple of video game companies. And Chris and I have talked about before the fact that people don't tend to see the toy industry as a career choice, uh, but they certainly do see video gaming as a career choice. Do you have any thoughts on how do we get more uh, young people to come into the toy industry and see it as a career path?
2: I was fortunate that I grew up with my next door neighbor being the head of advanced design for Mattel. If you remember back in the days of football one and football two, the little LEDs, I mean, they were massive back in those days. And the gentleman, Gene Kilroy was uh, the family friend. He had a son that was my age and he would bring home what I now know are called first engineering pilots, FEPs. Of all his stuff, and he knew I, I. He would just hand me stuff, and I got really interested in what he was doing, which I think he thought was cool that this little kid was interested in what he was doing. But I always said I want to be like Mister Killer when I grow older, and my dad, you know, who was a big executive at an oil and gas company, thought that was crazy.
0: Ah, uh-huh. and and what do they think now?
2: I think he's okay with it now.
0: <laughs>
2: but I think you know, part of getting people into the industry is the tying it to the product innovation and the marketing. I think we have a, a great industry that's, that really teaches people very differently than the, you know, than the big CPG companies. And I think that both add value. I mean, the classic training you get from CPG is amazing. But when I look back um, at what I've done and when I, is I think about the number of new product launches, the number of product innovations, the number of commercials... I've shot over 25 years. There, there is no other industry that that kind of experience and that type of fast, rapid-paced innovation and, and development and fast failure. I mean, if, as you know, if you're getting one in three right, you're doing pretty well, right. very well. If I was a student coming out of business school or undergrad, that's what I would want. I mean, if you're interested in innovation, you know, the ability to test and fail and learn how to innovate quickly Uh, is what these companies bring to the table.
1: Now, I I understand uh, that you have taken your company in a new direction by bringing uh, technology into one of the most classic forms of play.
2: Yeah, and we're not going to go tons of technology. It's not technology for technology's sake. We saw a presentation from um, a couple old buddies from Amazon, the Alexa team, and they walked us through, and I think we were – really doubting the efficacy of it early on. And then as they showed us, it was, how do you enhance the experience you get with a, with a kid craft item, this Alexa play kitchen. And it, it wasn't just, let's put an Alexa and have it tell you what to do. It's actually, we've gamified it. We've gamified the play using RFID chips and, a, and, a, and an Echo to allow kids to have a deeper play pattern within the item. And so for us, that was why it made sense. Now, will we do 55 connected products over the next couple of years? No, we're going (laughs) to be very selective when we do it. Uh, But we want to be very thoughtful. And we believe that there is a consumer and a kid that wants this type of play without the screen and really is engaging and develops. And so far, the sales on it on Black Friday were phenomenal. So we're very, very happy on where we stand right now.
0: You know, I have to argue with you, though, a little bit, because you talk about that like such a (laughs) grown-up. It's like, Mom talks to Alexa in the kitchen. I want to talk to Alexa in my kitchen.
2: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's kind of, you know, that's how it started. But, you know, it it was, and and that's the fun part. And I I think one of the cool things I loved about KidCraft and the development of it, We know who we are and we know who we aren't. And I, it's rare where you see companies like that. We're not a technology company. So we really embraced the partners that we brought to the table as we started building out the Alexa skills. And we didn't tell them that we knew how to build a skill better than them. We actually embraced their knowledge and allowed them to be a partner in it. And I think when we got the Amazon team, the skill company and ours together, we ended up with an amazing product that really, uh, I think is resonating with consumers.
0: You said earlier that one in three products, if they're successful, then we're successful. And that is an endemic part of the toy industry. You recently had something that that didn't do quite as well as you anticipated, as I anticipated it would. And that's the concept of fast failure. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah, I think what I love about toys and what I love about innovation is that ability to test and learn, fail fast, and and move on to the next thing. We launched a lot of new innovation uh, this year. And it was new for KidCraft to really push that much through our company without the depth of research I would have had at a Mattel. So a lot of this was us trusting our gut. And that can work out really well with something like Alexa. And it can also miss once in a while. And so we had a segment called Design by Me. And it's uh, how do you bring arts and crafts into dollhouse play? And it's been slow out of the gate. We're still kind of measuring to see how well it does. And I know you and I both thought it was going to be really cool. Yeah, And it's, you know, incredible on the, where arts and crafts is as a category right now, because it's booming and the products just haven't really translated to the consumer. And we're doing a little bit of diving into why, but now we're pivoting and we're going to start, you know, what does next year look like? We'll continue to pressure test and drive it.
0: When you first showed it to me, I thought, this is a great idea because DIY and home design and all of that are such big trends right now. And we know that kids like to do what adults see. But there's also been a lot of arts and crafts coming out this year. So it may be something that just takes time to find its feet.
2: It, it's either find its feet or it might just be arts and crafts tends to be a very fairly low price category. It doesn't play up in the $80 to $100 range and consumers may get enough out of it at the lower prices that once you combine it with the uh, higher price point, it just didn't translate to the value that the consumer wants.
1: Tell our listeners what fast failure is. What does it mean?
2: I think fast failure to me is, you know, when you launch items, getting a quick read on what the consumer demand is, and then pivoting. Um, You know, too many times people will keep investing in items that just aren't translating or aren't connecting to the consumer. Uh, When they've done all the research and you've been in this industry for a lot of years and you launch and you have all the research and you have the consumer and it just doesn't work. And you have two choices at that point, continue to spend and go crazy and try to force it to work when 99 times out of a hundred, it doesn't. Or just admit that you missed and move on and I always say free your team up to go do the next thing, which is allowing you to free up every company, big or small, has constrained resources. So you have to allow your resources to free up and go focus on other future items.
0: So, Jeff, we're going to ask you something that we've been asking all our guests and tell us a secret.
2: Oh, <laughs> it's not a lot of asking, but it's ever worked for me because <laughs> it's long and dark and many, but uh, you know. <laughs> The uh, um, you know, I, I shared even you my comic books, which a lot of some people know, but I, I kind of hide the because uh, um, I think my dad always told me that wasn't very professional to talk about comic books and things. You know, th- my big secret is I actually interviewed a Mattel three times before I got accepted in. And it was um, I, I got rejected twice. And uh, not many people know that because I, you know, why tell that? But it's uh, I made my way in. And they had a, outside of Judge, that Finds Judge Dredd movie, they had a property uh, back when Image Comics were super big with uh, Todd McFarlane and Rob Liefeld and gang. Mattel had signed a license with one of the properties called Cyberforce. And uh, as you remember, Image was some of the top Marvel-produced animators, and Cyberforce was one of their properties. So I'm interviewing, and not only Judge Dredd, but the director of the action figure business asked me what I know about comic books. And I've interviewed twice at Mattel, and I, I have a dad who's a senior executive at a big company. And you don't talk comic books in an interview. That would be something that I would never ever do. But you know, after failing twice, I decided to just halfway through drop it and say, "Yeah, I know a little bit about comic books. I've kind of played a little bit on them," and gave her a detailed overview of Image and Mark Silvestri and Cyberforce and. At one point, she goes, "You know, way more than you're telling me." <laughs> that's where I got the job, basically. And it, you know, it, it's that that going back to passion. Right. Um, I I showed passion in an interview for something I deeply cared about, and I didn't try to make you know make me me. I, or make me not me. I, I just held myself out. You know, I know you did an interview um, with a great friend of mine named Ronnie Frankowski. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I loved Ronnie when I first met him in the interview because he was him. He didn't try to hide. Ronnie's not right for every company, and he would tell you that. But Ronnie was authentic in the interview, which is what I loved about him. And I think that that's critical. And, you know, when I interviewed, I really talking comic books was totally against everything I believed in. But it worked. So uh, I was pretty, pretty excited.
0: And that's really something that is. Endemic to the toy industry. that people are individuals and they're creative individuals, and you're not trying to fit a PNG mold or Xerox mold or something. You're, it's really about that creative spark, which is not quantifiable.
2: No, it's you know, finding the right people to fit, I think is key. That's how you build a team. And we we talked earlier, is it's not a guy in a white shirt with a red tie. It's men and women of all different looks and makeups. But as long, I always said as long as they like pop culture, I'm in, I'll give them a I'll give them a shake and they have to be able to find something. They have to be a comic book, but they have to nerd out about something. And uh, because toys are that kind of that kind of passion, you've got to love the toy and get into the play. I always built many of the Hot Wheels track sets. When I worked on that business, I would be on my floor in of my office building the toys I Even at KidCraft now, I, I although I'm not very good with a screwdriver, I will build a lot of the dollhouses and a lot of the things we bring in. And uh, when I first started doing it, my team wasn't really sure what to make of it. And I would also complain about if the instruction page wasn't right or I'm going to make sure the consumer experience at every point is always fantastic. And whether it was on Hot Wheels or whether it's what I'm doing now, uh, that's always been critical to everything I do. And I think that's part of the passion behind
1: what we do. Let me take you back to comic books for just a minute. <laughs> in, in movies, we as an industry are, are um, highly dependent uh, upon the comic book industry. In the movie industry, I have some concerns right now, I'm sure you do, about the health of the comic book industry. Do you have concerns about these industries? Can you give us some of your observations?
2: I think it's been an interesting year. It's You, you have the the, the juxtaposition of our business that's doing so incredibly well with all the other challenges going on in the world. And you have to be cautious in how much you talk about the positivity going on in our company externally because of all the other challenges I like think a lot of people are going through. And I, I take those industries as a great example is industries are going to have to pivot and think about how to do things differently. And some are being forced to do it live and, and, You know, movie theaters are one of those. And I think Disney and Mulan was a great example of going live direct to consumer with a theatrical potential release. Comic books are, are, I think, in a really challenging spot. It's not just the dealers, it's the publishers themselves. Is the units they do are so low nowadays compared to what they used to do because kids just aren't buying into the format anymore. But the great stories that they tell if you think about Avengers Endgame, that was a comic book arc that was written 10, 15 years ago. The Batman Superman arc that was written 20 years ago from you know, these, are some of the great writers and, and authors and artists over the decades. And those are now being made in the movies. What I worry is that those stories that built these great arcs will go away if the publishers themselves just become IP. And I think that's the balance. The studios own the IP, but they also own the publishing house, which fuels the future.
1: Someone like you who collects comic books and you were saying that younger people are not as into comic books. Is it the book itself? Are they are they embracing this online in digital formats or are they walking away from comic books? Yeah, I'm not I'm not as close on that
2: one. I I do know that the units that the publishers are making are, are down significantly. Um, and I haven't seen a digital format that seems to translate at the level that would be meaningful. You know, and I am very much part of the touch and feel and the collecting of it. And, you know, all the way back, I think I started when I was like six, is what my mom will tell you. <laughs> um, and of course, I, you know, I read him in my treehouse.
1: Lulu number one. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, I no, mean, I was a Sp- Spider Man or Batman going all the way back. Right. Um, I think I always identified with Spider Man, this nerdy kid uh you know who i I moved around a lot as a kid so i needed somebody like that to identify with and uh i think that's what made some of the characters so amazing is the the background of of comic book characters is incredible and stan lee is one of the most the greatest creators in 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 the world and each one of his characters had flaws and that's what made them so humanizing and Uh, And that's what makes them such great movies now because they balance the two is they have they have flawed characteristics, but they're there trying to save the world and do things better for humanity. And I think that really helps consumers and, and why they translate so phenomenally well.
0: Before we finish up, and you alluded to some of this, what are you seeing overall in the toy industry as we finish up 2020? And what are you seeing as we move into 2021? We heard yesterday, and we're recording this on December 1st, that by June of next year, anybody who wants a vaccine for COVID will be able to get it. As you look ahead, what do you see for the industry as as a whole?
2: This holiday season, I think everyone's having a great season. It's been the biggest challenge has been kind of logistics, getting things uh, out of Asia and getting trucks to pick up, to get to the retailers. And then finally, the last mile to the consumer will be a bigger window than ever before as there's been such a giant shift to e-com. Uh, and so, but you know, I think most companies are having a fabulous year. As we head next year, I think there are trends that aren't gonna change immediately. We went through a 10 or 15 year globalization curve and it was all about getting out there and being global. What you're seeing is a localization Happening, And I don't think that light switch goes off in a day. I think that's going to be a a five plus year trend where people will stay more local. And in doing that, how we're designing and developing for next year is already into play. We talk about our outdoor business. We have absolutely pivoted towards active play. We believe that there is a kid that will be, as they stay local, the backyards will become the new playground. And how do we add to that and give kids and parents multiple experiences you can have in the backyard. And that active play concept is going to permeate our whole line. And so I, I always joke, like, if you go to a lot of the big swing sets, they have that plastic telescope that doesn't really do anything. Right. It doesn't even have telescope features right. <laughs> and in active play that's useless. So cost reduce it and put the play somewhere else. And so we're, we're moving that around. We're not, Taking it out just to take it out. We're adding other types of play throughout our formats, and you know, one item we haven't highlighted anywhere. So you're first to hear. So don't tell anybody. But uh, uh, we have a partnership with Nerf that will be launching this summer of 21, where we have developed battle forts for Nerf wow. consumer to use their blasters with. And they rock. We've been partnering with the Nerf team. They've been amazing. And we haven't shown anybody uh, outside of a couple of retailers and these things are gonna blow out when the summer hits.
0: I kind of think that's not fair because we had to build our own. (laughs) I know It's awesome. (laughs) But you heard uh, it
1: here first on the Playground podcast. Yes. Chris and I uh, have talked a lot about concerns with the supply chain. Where are your products made and have you experienced problems with with the supply chain?
2: Yeah, I mean, our, our product supply chain has been a challenge all the way from Asia, all the way down to the end consumer. And I think that's the biggest challenge or headwind facing the industry this year. Our products are made uh, same place most of the toy industry is made, which is Vietnam and China. Uh, over there, the big challenge is when COVID hit in the spring. Uh, the container companies kind of shifted their capacity and it takes time to scale that back up. And this fall, they, they are out of capacity. And so getting products out of, out of Asia right now is challenge. You're fighting on a daily basis. We have daily calls right now on how things are getting loaded. And for me, I'm in the middle of filling outdoor season, which starts in the spring, which is a big products going into a lot of containers. So it's a big challenge as we're, uh, leave, they're all leaving Asia right now. Once they finally do get to our warehouse or our partner's warehouses, the trucks, to, when they come to pick up, uh, you know, Amazon orders every week, replenishment orders, the trucks coming in are also challenged as they are running short. And then the final one is things like UPS and FedEx. They are running short of trucks to get it to the consumer. So if you have a dropship or an Amazon or any type of online business, that final mile to the consumer you know, I think last year, the final date, a lot of companies were quoting was like December 17th, 18th, last guarantee for Christmas. I have no idea where it's going to end up this year. It could be as early as the 10th. Every day you hear a different number. And the, the math was something like 7 million more or 7 billion more dollars going through e this year. Uh, and so just this incredible as so much volume is pivoted online, there's an incredible shift in capacity that uh, the infrastructure just doesn't exist.
0: Before we wrap this up, you're known for your innovation. What are the toys that have taught you about innovation?
2: You know, it's uh, I always laugh at that one because it's there. I probably end up talking about ones that I failed on more than the ones that are successful because <laughs> those ones you learn. You know, I, I always reference one item and you may remember it, Chris, cause I know you loved it was fidget. <laughs> you remember my little, my little character called fidget. And I do, uh, it was a, it was the Radica team. Mattel had bought a company called Radica and we had integrated them into LA and they came into my office one day and they showed me this little blob thing that kind of moved around. And I just looked at them like, I don't understand what the hell this is. And, uh, they said, and it was, uh, Uh, Susan Russo and Kevin Brace. Susan now works for me at KidCraft. Um, And Susan goes, Jeff, give us a month to prove you're wrong. And I said, okay, cool. Nothing I like more than being wrong when it comes to making great toys. She and Kevin took a month. They did some consumer research. And what they came back in is what you remember is fidget. And it was a grand slam that year in the market. But it it taught me when I talk again about passion, it taught me sometimes let your teams breathe, get the right consumer insights, find out what the consumer wants. If their passion drives it, they're going to make great things happen. And that's what Susan and Kevin had done with that item. So it was uh, it was fun to watch.
0: Jeff Walker, as always, it is inspiring to talk to you. And I am so happy that we get to share it with the Playground podcast audience Thank you. All the best for the rest of a good year this year and into next year.
2: Chris and Richard, thank you guys for having me. And uh, obviously, Chris, go back a long way. And you're one of the all time great people in this industry. And I love working with you. Um, And I'm glad everyone's healthy and safe. Also, it's you know, it's such a crazy year to not be able to do these things live. But uh, um, I look forward to when you can come down to Dallas and walk you through our product line.
0: Can't wait. And, you know, the one thing I always say about the toy industry, it is certainly resilient. So it will be back and different and the same in pretty short order. So thank you again. This is the Playground Podcast, and we'll be right back with the end cap. And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I talk about issues that are facing the toy industry. We've been lighthearted for a couple of weeks, but now we're turning our attention to something a little bit more serious which is how prices are on the rise in China. And Richard, you just did an article on this, which I thought was was very good and really summarized what we're up against.
1: Well, well Chris, I, I, I've spoken to several people, and I know you're hearing this too, that prices are going up. And I had, here's a quote from a, a, from a source which said, we are getting hit from the factories with requests for increases, and we are anticipating them to hit hard after Chinese New Year's as we go into the, into the new administration. And he's talking about the Biden administration. The causes, Chris, and we're going to go through these one of them at a time. One is uh, simply that the U.S. dollar is not as valuable as it was against the Chinese renminbi, which is their currency. I think that's probably says something to do with the fact that the Chinese economy has surged back more quickly than the U.S. economy has.
0: Right. And our dollar, basically what that means is our dollar doesn't go as far. So when we read the
1: reporting from the different
0: publicly traded companies, they always talk about the impact of currency exchange on margins and costs.
1: This is something, of course, exchange rates fluctuate up and down, but the American dollar doesn't go as far in China. Another one, Chris, is uh, raw material prices. And this kind of surprised me because it's being by uh, driven by increases in the demand for PVC, PP, PE, ABS plastics. And Chris, I, I guess I don't quite get it because I, I think the cost of oil from which these resins are made is at an all-time low.
0: It is. At, at the same time, we've got the depression in refining here in the U.S. because of the pandemic. But there are other issues at play. Paper costs are up. Labor is up. Even things like the electricity in to run the plants in China is more expensive than it was. So it's it's the raw materials, but it's all the overall costs. And, and let's not even get into the cost of shipping, which seem to be going up continually.
1: Part of the demand is, again, because the Chinese economy has been resurgent, demand in China for toys is up, which increases demand on plastic. Uh, China is the number two uh, toy market in the world, and uh, they do have an impact. Another one, Chris, is government regulations. And I found information on this, but I'm not clear of the connection. It seems that the Chinese government attempting to reduce pollution put some regulations in place that forced the cost of cardboard and circuit boards to go up, which means that packaging has increased in price.
0: Yeah, packaging has continued to go up. And one of the things that's interesting is that companies like Mattel have been very aggressive at reducing things like electricity consumption and being more conscious of how their plants are polluting. And I think that as it becomes system wide throughout China, through all the factories, that's going to increase costs because it does what you have to do to reduce pollution adds cost to the factories, which add cost to the toys.
1: And then one final area, and this is just my conjecture. I don't there's no I don't have any third party source for this, but it just seems to me that if I'm a Chinese factory owner and I really took it on the chin last January, February, March, April, maybe into May, my factory's being closed, I'm taking a little extra in my pricing right now just to make up for some of the lost revenue and profit earlier
0: in the year. I agree. And as typically happens in this, the toy companies get caught in the middle because, of course, they've got the higher prices for production, which they have to negotiate, but then they've got the the prices that the retailers in the U.S. are willing to charge, and so that's always a negotiation. So the toy companies have to determine whether or not they're going to absorb the costs, they're going to force price increases, and what does that mean for consumers? It's a completely fluid situation, but if the past is prologue, we know that costs are going to go up, and moving out of China is not a solution because there are all the costs attendant on setting up manufacturing in other areas.
1: I really like your last point. And, and, and because what really came across to me is how interdependent the U.S. and Chinese economies are. And we've had a lot of controversy the last four years around uh, instituting uh, tariffs and trying to move production back to the U.S., and Nothing's changed, really. I mean, some people have moved some production to other Asian countries, but they can only absorb so much. So this Chinese-American economic relationship is hugely important, particularly for the toy industry, in which 86 percent of our toys are made in China.
0: And I do think that this is something that the trade people in the new Biden administration understand and that they will be focused on, because... Essentially, they are willing to acknowledge that this is a global economy and toys is definitely a global business. So I think the win-win solutions are what everybody is looking for. As always, I love talking about this stuff and we hope you enjoy listening. This is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, and Richard Gottlieb. And we are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, The Toy Guy, and Chizcom. And we will see you next time.